I don't know, punk just, I guess, resonated because I felt like I was so different and I, it was the thing that I could see around me that was like the freak music. <laughs> like, it's because I felt like a freak. Kaya Wilson grew up in a small Oregon town called Jasper. She was a teenager in the late 1980s. At that age, like 13, 14, I was just starting to come out to myself, kind of, and my dog. I did come out to my dog. She says she didn't really have any role models in her community. You know, and at some point, once I did come out more publicly or whatever in my high school, I had some, definitely some targeted homophobia and weird things happen to me. I did not get physically assaulted, but I got verbally assaulted, and then I also got, like, dead animals put on my windshield, like, Creepy stuff, really creepy stuff. Through zines and the nearby college radio station, Wilson learned about riot girl bands, and it wasn't long before she started making music herself. When I was 17, I was in a band called Addicted. That is A-D-I-C-K-D-I-D. Addicted. It was a band of all women. She also began venturing out to the closest city, Eugene, Oregon. This was 1991, and Allison Wolf and Molly Newman of Bratmobile were at the University of Oregon in Eugene. Wilson remembers meeting them at a party. I remember that they thought it was really cool that I was in high school and I was gay. It didn't make any sense to me at the time because I just felt like kind of embarrassed that I was in high school. Um, And then they said it was cool that I was in high school and gay. And I was like, oh, really? That's cool? Oh, okay. I guess that's cool. Around the same time she met Allison and Molly, Kaya Wilson discovered the zine Chainsaw. It was made by a musician in Olympia named Donna Dresch. I think she's the first, like, dyke that I was like, that's, that's like me. <laughs> like, that's a person that makes total sense to me in all the ways. While she was still in high school, Wilson became pen pals with Donna Dresch. And eventually, they started a band together called Team Dresch. They were part of a movement known as Queer Core, originally called Homocore. Queer Core and Riot Girl both grew out of punk, and in many ways they were aligned. But Wilson says she never really felt at home at Riot Girl shows. It's not like Riot Girl was like anti-queer, but it didn't feel specifically queer in the way that I just, that's what I needed at that time. The aesthetic was like uh, maybe baby doll dresses and... Uh, barrettes and stuff, which is wonderful, except not that's not my that's not my jam. And then it also, I think the like the politic of it felt more um, straight, for a lack of a better word. We've talked about the political activism of Riot Girl. People who were active in the movement spoke out about reproductive rights, sexual assault, and safety for women within the punk scene. These were issues that brown, indigenous people of color and queer, trans, and gender nonconforming people had been living with on a heightened level long before they caught the attention of white women in Riot Girl. So that created some complicated relationships, and in some ways that hasn't changed. When I moved to Portland in 2010, I felt this paradox in the punk scene. From the outside, punk seems like a safe place to be different and to express that, But while going to punk shows in Portland felt that way to me in some ways, I actually found myself feeling more pissed off in other ways. I realized I was surrounded by straight white kids who actually came from rich or at least comfortable families that just wanted to have somewhere and something to scream about. I'm Fabi Reina, founder of She Shreds Media, and this is Starting a Riot. 
Queer core predates Riot Girl, and in some ways the movements became intertwined. Team Dresh and Bikini Kill toured together. Everybody was had a, a little different angles and stuff, but like the, the same general desire towards, you know, fucking up the white supremacist patriarchy. <laughs> like that was, I think, the desire by everybody. That sounds dope, but it's really not that simple. In her book, Girls to the Front, Sarah Marcus writes about an unlearning racism workshop that was part of the first Riot Girl convention in the summer of 1992. It was actually a key moment in that first convention. Bikini Kill lead singer Kathleen Hanna organized this two-hour workshop and recruited a black woman from the D.C. Peace Center to lead it. We tried to track her down, but we weren't able to find her. So we have to rely on Sarah Marcus's retelling of the event. Uh, Apparently, like some of the people in the workshop had a hard time with this. Some of the, the white girls in the workshop didn't want to, you know, be made to feel guilty for being white or whatever kinds of things people say when they're first confronted with the idea that for all that they may feel disadvantaged in the world, they also are enjoying forms of unearned privilege. Marcus points out that Riot Girl was predominantly white. As we talked about in episode two, it grew out of largely white punk spaces in the Pacific Northwest and spread by word of mouth. It was also decentralized. And while there were plenty of BIPOC folks involved, the movement wasn't really set up to embrace diversity. The work of actually coming up with workable theories that can build multiracial movement spaces, it's not obvious. It's not just something that you like decide you care about and then you get it right. Ramdasha Bixim was at that 1992 convention. They got connected to Riot Girl in the early 90s through zines. And early on, they became one of the most visible Black Riot Girls. Being Black, it's a marginalized identity that's put upon you. So you are naturally have an affinity to punk. Like, Black people are just naturally punk. We heard a lot from Big Seam in episode 3. They created both a zine and a band called Gunk that played at that convention. Big Seam was 16 at the time, and as a queer teenager, punk felt welcoming. I mean, I just wasn't trying to be pretty. You know, I shaved my head. I wore, like, punk clothes, baggy clothes. I wasn't trying to be super sexy. That was, like, my statement on my gender. The convention was mostly a positive experience for Big Seam. It was also the only time they attended a Riot Girl meeting. It was uncomfortable for a lot of reasons. One being, like, not that inclusive with other different marginalized identities. I don't like the term POC, so I don't really use that word. There wasn't a lot of people of the global majority there. I'll say it like that. Bixim felt like there was a big elephant in the room when it came to dealing with race and racism, both at the convention and within Riot Girl as a movement. I think white guilt is a problem. And a lot of times people bypass actually dealing with their own racism by like, you know, skirting it with white guilt being like, oh, you know, well, like, we'll include a Black person in it, and and then that'll make it better. Being scared to speak up and to make mistakes. It's like really digging deep into what it means to live in a world carrying white privilege. Because when they look at what that actually means, it's very painful. And sometimes I feel like people don't want to feel the pain. So they say a bunch of lip service instead of actually looking to what that actually means in your day-to-day life. How are you enacting and enabling white supremacy? 
Coming up after a break, we hear from someone who was part of Riot Girl and tried to grapple with this in a song. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're going to want to listen to a band called Fuck You, Pay Us. This queer, black punk band is focused on reparations and a lot more. Find their live recordings on Bandcamp under Fuck You, the letter U, Pay Us. And find out about their upcoming shows via Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Fuck You, that's the letter U, Pay Us. to Betsy released this song in 1994. Heavens to Betsy's White Girl brings up the kind of paradox I talked about earlier. And to me, the song shows that white women were being challenged to the point of self-reflection, but we didn't see the same level of community action that we saw for reproductive rights or gender-based violence. When we sat down to talk about Riot Girl, I asked Corin Tucker what she had in mind when she wrote that song. There were multiple conversations going on in Olympia, and there were conversations about the kind of exclusivity of, of feminism and white feminism and... I felt like at the time there were other white girls and white women who were listening to our band. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, I think it's important to use that space to have this conversation about race and have this conversation about looking at the world and understanding privilege a bit more. There were other attempts at including honest conversations about race and privilege in Riot Girl. But reflecting on it 30 years later, it's clear that Tucker feels like the movement fell short. I feel like there was a lot of space taken up by white women within Riot Girl. There were so many different ways that there could have been more of a reach out to inclusivity and women of color and making space for other voices, you know, that mm. didn't happen. And, mm. I, and I'm, I'm sad about that, you know. And I think that today, like you said, that conversation is is still going on, especially in in arts and music. And in terms of the music scene today, I think that hopefully there is more awareness about reaching out, about including more voices, about listening and thinking about your own background and your own privilege Mm -hmm. and how it relates to what other people might be going through. Struggling against sexism or even homophobia was unifying for Riot Girl. Because doing slash reading slash seeking slash hearing cool things that validate and challenge us can help us gain the strength and sense of community that we need in order to figure out how bullshit like racism, able-bodyism, ageism, speciesism, classism, thinism, sexism, anti-Semitism, and heterosexism figures in our own lives. But even though that original manifesto calls out racism, it was something many young white women would have preferred to ignore. 
And there was a sense that by centering gender, white riot girls didn't have to deal with race or their own privilege. There's also an assumption that women will stick together, that we just have this affinity for equality. And that's not true. <laughs> and it never was, especially in my life. Lena Dawes is a music critic and ethnomusicologist. So there was this like, oh, women, women, women. Yes, you're a woman. I'm a woman. Let's go and do this woman thing. And realistically, we all know that white women can just be as racist as white men. And white women can also be exclusionary. Dawes wrote a book that came out in 2013 called What Are You Doing Here? A Black Woman's Life and Liberation in Heavy Metal. She was in her 20s when Riot Girl started, and she remembers going to see some of those bands when they came through Toronto. That's where I felt uncomfortable because I felt like I was being judged and I was, you know, stared at because there was this weird understanding. I felt that it was a space for white women or non-black women, I should say, because anti-black racism is a whole different beast. So if I was Asian, I might have had an easier time and maybe I wouldn't have been stared at. But as a black woman, it was almost like, why are you here? You know, this wasn't for you. As the title of her book suggests, Dawes was more into heavy metal than punk anyway. And she says that she also had trouble relating to what Riot Girls were singing about. Black women have always had to fight harder because we are dealing with misogyny and we're dealing with racism and classism. How women are perceived in society at that time and even to this day, there's such a disconnect, you know, and, it's, and the experiences are so different that I think that why would I want to be emotionally involved in this musical scene or in this cultural scene and this movement, this very important movement, when my experiences are just so opposite to what you're singing about. Dawes says that race put up specific barriers for her when it came to embracing Riot Girl's view of sexuality. Riot Girl embraced the idea that someone could be both a sex worker and a feminist. And the movement was very sex positive in general. Yeah, I couldn't relate. Because my experience as a woman was in some ways to strip away my femininity. But you've got your femininity. You've got your sexuality. You've got the freedom to be sexual in any way you want. It was different because we were policed within our own communities. You can't talk about sex. People are going to think you're a whore. They already think that we're hypersexualized. You can't say anything because they're afraid of what white people are going to think. So many of these reflections about race and privilege in the 90s feel eerily familiar. Living in Portland now, I have a really hard time when I hear people say that black and brown people don't live here because that's just not true. But we prioritize the lived experience of white privilege and white history. And under that perspective, black lives don't exist until something like George Floyd's murder forces us to acknowledge that. We live in a racist society, you know, that has segregated music genres based on race and identity. And because of that, there's all these kind of machinations that happen that, which make the pleasure and the enjoyment of listening to music, making music, writing about music, just very complicated. 
Riot Girl simply was not set up to fight against racism. That doesn't mean that there weren't black women in Riot Girl, but it means that white and black Riot Girls experienced different versions of the movement. We're going to take another quick break, and then we'll hear more about that from a performance artist who is proud to call themselves a Riot Girl. If you're listening to this podcast, you're going to want to listen to the new album from Black Bolt Eagle Scout. It's called The Land, The Water, The Sky. Multi-instrumentalist Catherine Paul blends Pacific Northwest musical influences with her indigenous roots on the Salish Sea, and the result is something truly unique and beautiful. Find the album and tour dates at blackbelteaglescout.com. I want to introduce you to someone many people told us we just had to talk to for this podcast. My name is Brontes Purnell. I am a writer, performance artist, dancer, musician, college loan defaulter, practitioner of witchcraft. Um, I'm a Black girl from Alabama. Brontes Purnell uses the pronouns he, she, they, and auntie. When asked whether they agreed with Ramdasha Bixim that there is something inherently punk about being Black, this is what they said. No. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Being in the complication of being a Black gay male, especially from down South, Black gay men can be intensely conservative. Purnell discovered Riot Girl as a teenager growing up in the 90s and formed a Riot Girl band called the Dirty Broads. In general, they felt like an outsider, and in some ways, they were overtly rejected by the community where they lived. I was sitting in class, drama class, and the teacher called gay people a genetic mistake. And I remember being so hurt because I knew that I was gay, right? And so I go home and I write a letter to Kathleen Hanna, right? And then a couple weeks later, I remember coming home from choir competition in my like choir gown. I get home and like Kathleen Hanna had totally ridden me back. I still have a letter right here, right here. <laughs> on our Zoom call, Purnell held up a framed copy of the letter from the Bikini Kill lead singer on pink paper. They read it out loud. Sorry it took me so long to write back. Anyways, I am sending you my new band CD in hopes that the Dirty Broads will send me something, even just a practice tape, or maybe I'll get a zine. It's so weird writing to someone you don't know. I never know what to say. Oh, well. I hope your senior year is going okay and it's not too sucky. I personally hated high school more in retrospect maybe than I did at the time. I'm not sure. And I'm really glad that since then, things have just gotten better and better. The teacher you mentioned in your letter, the one who thinks his superior genes gives him the right to marry, have kids, etc., sounds like such a fucking idiot. It makes me so mad that someone who was supposed to be a quote-unquote leader is allowed to get away with that kind of crap. Duh. It's so cool that you stood up to him. I wish I could have been a fly. It's too bad the world is so totally homophobic, though. It makes it pretty hard to figure things out. Anyway, I'll stop blabbing on and on, and I'll tell you that your letter made my day. And yes, you indeed look cute in the picture you sent. I hope you send me a zine or something. Write me back if you feel like it again. My apologies for taking so long to respond. Kathleen Hanna's letter had a profound effect on young Brontes Purnell. Let me tell you something. So many faggots, all their teenage like uh, women that they worshipped were these like faraway stars. The divas that I worshipped 
I got to talk to changed the whole scope of my life. It was very, it was real motherfucking magic. They were also discovering queer corzines in music through the Kill Rockstars catalog. For Purnell, being a queer black punk meant embracing contradictions. I think when you don't really sit anywhere comfortably, you can sit anywhere comfortably. Do you see what I'm saying? And there are ways in which, I don't know, like, moving to Chattanooga, Tennessee, like sitting in a room full of like these like crazy dirty white boys playing guitar all the time. It makes no sense, but there are ways in which I was safer there than around a group of rural black Southern Christians. Purnell proudly identifies as a riot girl. They said that feeling at home in the movement was what helped them find their people when they left the South for the Bay Area. I understand that a bunch of straight white girls heard Rebel Girl and like ran with it, but at the end of the day, like, Riot Girl as a house was specifically made for me. No one can take that away. When you look at the genesis points of Riot Girls, this is who it was intended for. I am definitely one of the childs that it was intended for. Purnell said something we heard from a lot of people. They're not sure it would have been possible to make a more diverse and inclusive version of Riot Girl in the 90s. I definitely think that desegregation in America is proving to be more of a hundred year period than a one-stop shop. And so even finding a core group of black women that would necessarily walk into like these spaces of mostly white women probably just was not, I just don't think it was there. I want to be clear about something. I'm a brown, light-skinned woman who will never understand the social implications and nuances of what being Black in the United States is like. My experience is different just simply based on the fact that, in most of the world, having lighter skin means having more privilege and more access. But I'm here hosting this podcast because being brown and Black means being segregated. And being segregated means being isolated in a way that makes it harder to find your own identity. What I can relate to is this exact feeling of looking into a room that you're told includes you, seeing not one body that represents you, and walking away. As a child in the 90s, I put on so many blinders to be able to walk into a lot of those spaces. I mean, I had access to a lot of freedom, too. There was a lot of cool shit. But I mean, it it took a kind of a spiritual muscle to be Black and like walk into those spaces. Of course, Purnell wasn't a complete anomaly. There were so many queer Black punks, actually, that I met that were just like these kind of oasises for me. We didn't know it at the time, but we were aerating the soil for the next generation. There are Black kids who are 22 who came up with Afropunk, who just believed like the whole world has operated this like this way the whole time. I have a really funny time explaining to them the way it actually was. Purnell has kept in touch with the Riot Girl heroes. They're going on tour with Bikini Kill this year. Teenage dreams do come true. Because, I mean, if I really think about what goal I've ever had, opening for, up for Bikini Kill was really the only one. That's the only reason I've ever played music. So <laughs> after that, I think I can retire. <laughs> but... That's the thing about Riot Girl. It's not all in the past. Bikini Kill drummer Toby Vale wants to focus on what happens next. I think the danger of like focusing on what happened in the very early 90s at the Riot Girl conventions and the zines and stuff like that and the activist protest network, I think it's really important to look at that history. But I, you know, I don't want to just like get stuck there because I think that was just like a beginning point 
for a lot of people, right? Like, I don't think that's like an ending point. In my almost 20 years of knowing Riot Girl, I feel like I've gone through three stages of a relationship. First, an infatuation and admiration that helped me grow as a person when I needed it the most. Then I started questioning and wondering if this was really for me. Do I even see myself in it? Eventually, I let go of what it could or should have been and let those teachings from that relationship help shape what I'm becoming and want to build next. Flawed as it was, Riot Girl was the beginning of so many amazing things. And these conversations are ongoing. In the next episode, we'll talk about the legacy left by Riot Girl and who's carrying on the ethos of the movement and making it their own. We're not trying to be Riot Girl or be one particular thing, you know. We just want to be a band that has fun and makes music and, like, makes something that feels important to us. But I would say that, like, what Riot Girl really represents is this way that you don't ever have to be afraid of the music that you can make and or be afraid to change it up, switch it up, and, like, find new avenues of expression. Yes, everyone was talking about Riot Girl, but, like, no one was actually starting a riot. Starting a Riot is brought to you by Oregon Public Broadcasting and She Shreds Media. Thanks to all the members who make podcasts possible at OPB. This podcast is hosted by me, Fabi Reina. Julie Sabatier produced this podcast, and I'm going to hand the first part of these credits over to her. The songs you heard in this episode were Hand Grenade by Team Dresch, White Girl by Heavens to Betsy, Sneaking Into Your House by Emily Sassy Lime, Double Daria and White Boy by Bikini Kill. Thank you to the band members and to Terror Bird and Kill Rockstars for allowing us to use those songs. You can find a playlist on our website, opb.org slash starting a riot. You should also go out, buy the music, and support the artists. Our editor for this project is Sage Van Wing. Our theme music is composed by Ray Ags. Listen to their solo projects and their bands, Trash Kit, Shopping, and Sacred Paws. Our sound engineers are Nalene Silva and Stephen Cray, all mixing and mastering by Stephen Cray. Thanks to Ryan Haas, Anna Griffin, Donald Orr, and Prakruti Bot for their listening ears. Also, thanks to JT Griffith and the team at Liminal Music for their help with music rights. Thanks to our Riot Girl Manifesto readers, Dina Barnwell, Jen Chavez, and Prakruti Bot. If you like our podcast, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. It helps people find us. 